Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales, week two of Nikolai Gogol. Uh, we are going to have The Cloak. We are going to have Memoirs of a Madman. We're going to have The Nose. We are going to have some other stuff in there. We're going to have, uh, let's see, what's that other one? I got to scan through my notes here. Uh, uh, Inspector General. We're going to break that up throughout the week. So you're going to hear a uh, play of Inspector General throughout the week. And you know what? None of this could be possible without our friends over at bunnyslippers.com. Get yourself some Highland Cow slippers. They are... I'm recording my living room right now. Actually, technically, I think I'm in the kitchen. But I'm on linoleum floors, and my feet are nice and warm. Why? Because I've got some woolly, woolly Highland Cow slippers. And oh man, do they keep my feet warm. And I look cool because I'm wearing my Bad News Bears three-quarter length sleeve because it's kind of chilly in here. You know, not, not cold enough that I need to put a sweater on, but then I've got a three-quarter length sleeve shirt on and a hoodie. Yeah, I've got a hoodie on. I've got a Black Clock Audio Tales hoodie on from our shop over at pgttcm.com. So, you know, found item clothing, Black Clock Audio Tales, pgttcm.com, shop at the places that support us and support us by shopping at our store. If you want to support us, you can go to Facebook, you can go to Twitter, you can go to Instagram, you can go to any place that you find podcasts and rate and review us. Let people know, because honestly, that helps. And you know what? I've had other people pretty much vandalize <laughs> vandalize uh uh, my uh, iTunes because they had problems with me that were totally unrelated to the podcast because I didn't want to review a book or because I uh, like an asshole uh, I'm, I'm sorry a jerk uh, posted some email that was like them trying to be cool and being like how I should have them on my show and it's like that's not what kind of podcast this is I don't just have writers who write fiction and horror come on the show but hey if you know stuff if you look at our schedule and you see something that you want to talk about contact me on facebook or instagram and i'll get you on the show and you know what that's the best way to find us and help out the show by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm here we go with some google all right Recording by Hatton43 in January 2017. Taras Bulba and Other Tales by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. The Kalash. The town of B had become very lively since a cavalry regiment had taken up its quarters in it. Up to that date, it had been mortally wearisome there. When you happened to pass through the town and glanced at its little mud houses with their incredibly gloomy aspect, the pen refuses to express what you felt. You suffered a terrible uneasiness, as if you had just lost all your money at play or had committed some terrible blunder in company. The plaster covering the houses, soaked by rain, had fallen away in many places from their walls, which, from white, had become streaked and spotted, whilst old, old reeds served to thatch them. Following a custom very common in the towns of South Russia, 
The chief of police has long since had all the trees in the gardens cut down to improve the view. One never meets anything in the town unless it is a cock crossing the road, full of dust and soft as a pillow. At the slightest rain, this dust is turned into mud, and then all the streets are filled with pigs. Displaying to all their grave faces, they utter such grunts that travellers only think of pressing their horses to get away from them as soon as possible. Sometimes, some country gentleman of the neighbourhood, the owner of a dozen serfs, passes in a vehicle which is a kind of compromise between a carriage and a cart, surrounded by sacks of flour and whipping up his bay mare with her colt trotting by her side. The aspect of the marketplace is mournful enough. The tailor's house sticks out very stupidly, not squarely to the front, but sideways. Facing it is a brick house with two windows, unfinished for fifteen years past, and further on, a large wooden market stall standing by itself and painted mud colour. This stall, which was to serve as a model, was built by the chief of police in the time of his youth, before he got into the habit of falling asleep directly after dinner and of drinking a kind of decoction of dried gooseberries every evening. All around the rest of the marketplace are nothing but palings, but in the centre are some little sheds where a packet of round cakes, a stout woman in a red dress, a bar of soap, some pounds of bitter almonds, some lead, some cotton, and two shopmen playing at Zweiker, a game resembling quoits, are always to be seen. But on arrival of the cavalry regiment, everything changed. The streets became more lively, and wore quite another aspect. Often, from their little houses, the inhabitants would see a tall and well-made officer with a plumed hat pass by, on his way to the quarters of one of his comrades, to discuss the chances of promotion, or the qualities of a new tobacco, or perhaps to risk at play his carriage, which might indeed be called the carriage of all the regiment, since it belonged in turn to every one of them. Today, it was a major who drove out in it. Tomorrow, it was seen in the lieutenant's coach house, and a week later, the major's servant was again greasing its wheels. The long hedges separating the houses were suddenly covered with soldiers' caps, exposed to the sun, greyfreeze cloaks hung in the doorways, and moustaches, harsh and bristling as clothes brushes, were to be met with in all the streets. These moustaches showed themselves everywhere, but above all at the market, over the shoulders of the women of the place, who flocked there from all sides to make their purchases. The officers lent great animation to society at B. Society consisted, up till then, of the judge, who was living with a deacon's wife, and of the chief of police, a very sensible man, but one who slept all day long from dinner till evening, and from evening till dinner time. The general liveliness was still further increased when the town of B became the residence of the general commanding the brigade to which the regiment belonged. Many gentlemen of the neighbourhood, whose very existence no one had even suspected, began to come into town with the intention of calling on the officers, or, perhaps, of playing bank, a game concerning which they had up till then only a very confused notion, occupied as they were with their crops and the commissions of their wives and their hair-hunting. I'm very sorry that I cannot recollect for what reason the general made up his mind one fine day to give a grand dinner. The preparations were overwhelming. The clatter of knives in the kitchen was heard as far as the town gates. 
the whole of the market was laid under contributions, so much so that the judge and the deacon's wife found themselves obliged that day to be satisfied with hasty puddings and cakes of flour. The little courtyard of the house occupied by the general was crowded with vehicles. The company only consisted of men, officers and gentlemen of the neighbourhood. Amongst these latter was above all conspicuous Pythagoras Pythagorovich Chertokutsky, one of the leading aristocrats of the district of B, the most fiery orator at the nobiliary elections and the owner of a very elegant turnout. He had served in a cavalry regiment and had even passed for one of its most accomplished officers, having constantly shown himself at all the balls and parties wherever his regiment was quartered. Information respecting him may be asked of all the young ladies in the districts of Tambov and Simbirsk. He would very probably have further extended his reputation in other districts if he had not been obliged to leave the service in consequence of one of those affairs which is spoken of as a very unpleasant business. Had he given or received a blow, I cannot say with certainty, but what is indisputable is that he was asked to send in his resignation. However, this accident had no unpleasant effect upon the esteem in which he had been held up till then. Chertokutsky always wore a coat of a military cut, spurs and moustache, in order not to have it supposed that he had served in the infantry, a branch of the service upon which he lavished the most contemptuous expressions. He frequented the numerous fairs to which flock the whole of the population of southern Russia, consisting of nursemaids, tall girls and burly gentlemen who go there in vehicles of such strange aspect that no one has ever seen their match, even in a dream. He instinctively guessed the spot in which a regiment of cavalry was to be found and never failed to introduce himself to the officers. On perceiving them, he bounded gracefully from his light phaeton and soon made acquaintance with them. At the last election, he had given to the whole of the nobility a grand dinner, during which he declared that if he were elected marshal, he would put all gentlemen on the best possible footing. He usually behaved after the fashion of a great noble, he had married a rather pretty lady, with a dowry of two hundred serfs and some thousands of roubles. This money was at once employed in the purchase of six fine horses, some gilt bronze locks, and a tame monkey. He further engaged a French cook. The two hundred peasants of the lady, as well as two hundred more belonging to the gentleman, were mortgaged to the bank. In a word, he was a regular nobleman. Besides himself, several other gentlemen were amongst the general's guests, but it is not worthwhile speaking of them. The officers of the regiment, amongst whom were the colonel and the fat major, formed the majority of those present. The general himself was rather stout, a good officer, nevertheless, according to his subordinates. He had a rather deep bass voice. The dinner was magnificent. There were sturgeons, sterlets, bustards, asparagus, quail, partridges, mushrooms. The flavour of all these dishes supplied an irrefutable proof the sobriety of the cook during the 24 hours preceding the dinner. Four soldiers, who had been given him as assistants, had not ceased working all night, knife in hand, at the composition of ragouts and jellies. The immense quantity of long-necked bottles, mingled with shorter ones, holding claret and Madeira, the fine summer day, the wide open windows, the plates piled up with ice on the table, the crumpled shirt fronts of the gentlemen in plain clothes, and a brisk and noisy conversation, now dominated by the general's voice, and now besprinkled with champagne, were all in perfect harmony.
the guests rose from the table with a pleasant feeling of repletion, and, after having lit their pipes, all stepped out, coffee cups in hand, onto the veranda. We can see her now, said the general. Here, my dear fellow, added he, addressing his aide-de-camp, an active, well-made young officer. Have the bay mare brought here. You shall see for yourselves, gentlemen. At these words, the general took a long pull at his pipe. She is not quite recovered yet. There is not a decent stable in this cursed little place. But she is not looking bad. Puff, puff. The general here let out the smoke which he had kept in his mouth till then. The little mare. It is long since your excellency, puff, 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 condescended to buy her? asked Chertokutsky. Puff, 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 puff. Not very long. I had her from the breeding establishment two years ago. And did your excellency condescend to buy her ready broken, or have to have her broken in you here yourself? Puff, 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 here. As he spoke, the general disappeared behind a cloud of smoke. At that moment, a soldier jumped out of the stable. The trampling of a horse's hooves was heard, and another soldier with immense moustaches and wearing a long white tunic appeared, leading by the bridle the terrified and quivering mare, which, suddenly rearing, lifted him off his feet. Come, come, Agrafena Ivanovna, said he, leading her towards the veranda. The mare's name was Agrafena Ivanovna. Strong and bold as a southern beauty, she suddenly became motionless. The general began to look at her with evident satisfaction, and let off smoking. The colonel himself went down the steps and patted her neck. The major ran his hand down her legs, and all the other officers clicked their tongues at her. Chertokutsky left the veranda to take up a position beside the mare. The soldier who held her bridle drew himself up, and stared fixedly at the guests. She is very, very fine, said Chertokutsky, a very well-shaped beast. Will your excellency allow me to ask whether she is a good goer? She goes well, but that idiot of a doctor, juice take him, has given her some balls, which have made her sneeze for the last two days. She is a very, very, she is a fine beast, a very fine beast. Has your excellency a turnout to match the horse? Turnout? But she's a saddle horse. I know, I put the question, your excellency, to know if you have an equipages, an equipage worthy of your other horses. No, I have not much in the way of equipages. I must admit that for some time past I have been wanting to buy a calash, such as they build nowadays. I have written about it to my brother, who is now at St. Petersburg, but I do not know whether he will be able to send me one. It seems to me, Your Excellency, remarked the Colonel, that there are no better calashes than those of Vienna. You are right. Puff, puff, puff. I have an excellent calash, Your Excellency, a real Viennese calash, said Chertokutsky. That in which you came? Oh no, I make use of that for ordinary service, but the other is something extraordinary. It is as light as a feather, and if you sit in it, it seems as if your nurse was rocking you in a cradle. It is very comfortable then? Extremely comfortable. The cushions, the springs, and everything else are perfect. Ah, that is good. And what a quantity of things can be packed away in it. I've never seen anything like it, Your Excellency. When I was still in the service, there was room enough in the body to stow away ten bottles of rum, twenty pounds of tobacco, six uniforms, and two pipes. The longest pipes imaginable, 
your excellency, and in the pockets you could stow away a whole bullock. That is very good. It cost 4,000 rubles, your excellency. It ought to be good at that price. Did you buy it yourself? No, your excellency. I had it by chance. It was bought by one of my oldest friends, a fine fellow, with whom you would be very well pleased. We are very intimate. What is mine is his, and what is his is mine. I won it of him at cards. Would your excellency have the kindness to honour me at dinner tomorrow? You could see my calash. I don't know what to say. Alone I could not, but if you would allow me to come with these officers, I beg of them to come too. I shall esteem it a great honour, gentlemen, to have the pleasure of seeing you at my house. The colonel, the major, and the other officers thanked Chetokutsky. I am of opinion myself, your excellency, that if one buys anything, it should be good. It is not worth the trouble of getting, if it turns out to be bad. If you do me the honour of calling on me tomorrow, I will show you some improvements I have introduced on my estate. The general looked at him, and puffed out a fresh cloud of smoke. Chertokutsky was charmed with his notion of inviting the officers, and mentally ordered in advance all manner of dishes for their entertainment. He smiled at these gentlemen, who on their part appeared to increase their show of attention towards him, as was noticeable from the expression of their eyes and the little half-nods they bestowed upon him. His bearing assumed a certain ease, and his voice expressed great satisfaction. Your Excellency will make the acquaintance of the mistress of the house. That will be most agreeable to me, said the general, twirling his moustache. Chertokutsky was firmly resolved to return home at once, in order to make all the necessary preparations in good time. He had already taken his hat, but a strange fatality caused him to remain for some time at the general's. The card tables had been set out, and all the company, separating into groups of four, scattered itself about the room. Lights were brought in. Chertokutsky did not know whether he ought to sit down to whist, but as the officers invited him, he thought that the rules of good breeding obliged him to accept. He sat down. I do not know how a glass of punch found itself at his elbow, but he drank it off without thinking. After playing two rubbers, he found another glass close to his hand, which he drank off in the same way, though not without remarking. Really, it's time for me to go, gentlemen. He began to play a fresh rubber. However, the conversation, which was going on in every corner of the room, took an especial turn. Those who were playing whist were quiet enough, but the others talked a great deal. The captain had taken up his position on a sofa, and leaning against a cushion, pipe in mouth, he captivated the attention of a circle of guests gathered about him by his eloquent narrative of amorous adventures. A very stout gentleman, whose arms were so short that they looked like two potatoes hanging by his sides, listened to him with a very satisfied expression, and from time to time exerted himself to pull his tobacco pouch out of his coat-tail pocket. A somewhat brisk discussion on cavalry drill had arisen in another corner, and Chertokutsky, who had twice already played a knave for a king, mingled in the conversation by calling out from his place, In what year? or What regiment? without noticing that very often his question had no application whatever. At length, a few minutes before supper, play came to an end. Chetokutsky could remember that he had won a great deal, but he did not take up his winnings, and after rising stood for some time in the position of a man who has no handkerchief in his pocket. They sat down to supper. As might be expected, wine was not lacking, 
and Czertokutski kept involuntarily filling his glass with it, for he was surrounded by bottles. A lengthy conversation took place at table, but the guests carried it on after a strange fashion. A colonel, who had served in 1812, described a battle which had never taken place, and besides, no one could ever make out why he took out a cork and stuck it into a pie. They began to break up at three in the morning. The coachmen were obliged to take several of them in their arms like bundles, and Czertokutski himself, despite his aristocratic pride, bowed so low to the company that he took home two thistles in his moustache. The coachman who drove him home found everyone asleep. He routed out, after some trouble, the valet, who, after having ushered his master through the hall, handed him over to a maidservant. Czertokutski followed, her as well as he could, to the best room, and stretched himself beside his pretty young wife, who was sleeping in a nightgown as white as snow. The shock of her husband falling on the bed awoke her. She stretched out her arms, opened her eyes, closed them quickly, and then opened them again quite wide, with a half-vexed air. Seeing that her husband did not pay the slightest attention to her, she turned over on the other side, rested her fresh and rosy cheek on her hand, and went to sleep again. It was late, that is, according to country customs, when the lady woke again. Her husband was snoring more loudly than ever. She recollected that he had come home at four o'clock, and not wishing to awaken him, got up alone and put on her slippers, which her husband had, had sent for from St. Petersburg, and a white dressing gown, which fell about her like the waters of a fountain. Then she passed into her dressing room, and after washing in water as fresh as herself, went to her toilet table. She looked at herself twice in the glass, and thought she looked very pretty that morning. This circumstance, a very insignificant one apparently, caused her to stay two hours longer than usual before her glass. She dressed very tastefully and went into the garden. The weather was splendid. It was one of the finest days of the summer. The sun, which had almost reached the meridian, shed its most ardent rays, but a pleasant coolness reigned under the leafy arcades, and the flowers, warmed by the sun, exhaled their sweetest perfume. The pretty mistress of the house had quite forgotten that it was noon at least, and that her husband was still asleep. Already she heard the snores of two coachmen, and a groom, who were taking their siesta in the stable, after having dined copiously. But she was still sitting in a bower from which the deserted high road could be seen, when all at once her attention was caught by a light cloud of dust rising in the distance. After looking at it for some moments, she ended by making out several vehicles closely following one another. First came a light calash, with two places, in which was the general, wearing his large and glittering epaulets, with the colonel. This was followed by another with four places, containing the captain, the aide-de-camp, and two lieutenants. Further on came the celebrated regimental vehicle, the present owner of which was the major, and behind that another in which were packed five officers, one on his comrade's knees, the procession being closed by three more on fine bays. Are they coming here? thought the mistress of the house. Good heavens, yes, they are leaving the main road. She gave a cry, clasped her hands, and ran straight across the flower beds to her bedroom, where her husband was still sleeping soundly. Get up, get up, get up at once, she cried, pulling him by the arm. What, what's the matter? murmured Czertokutsky, stretching his limbs without opening his eyes. Get up, get up, 
Visitors have come, do you hear? Visitors. Visitors? What visitors? After saying these words, he uttered a little plaintive grunt, like that of a suckling calf. Hmm, let me kiss you. My dear, get up at once, for heaven's sake. The general has come with all his officers. Our oh, goodness, you've got a thistle in your moustache. The general? Has he come already? But why the deuce did they not wake me? And the dinner? Is the dinner ready? What dinner? But haven't I ordered a dinner? A dinner? You got home at four o'clock in the morning, and you did not answer a single word to all my questions. I did not wake you since you had so little sleep. Chertokutsky, his eyes staring out of his head, remained motionless for some moments, as though a thunderbolt had struck him. All at once, he jumped out of bed in his shirt. Idiot that I am, he exclaimed, clasping his hand to his forehead. I had invited them to dinner. What is to be done? Are they far off? They will be here in a moment. My dear, hide yourself. Ho oh, there, somebody. Hi there, you girl. Come here, you fool. What are you afraid of? The officers are coming here. Tell them I am not at home, that I went out early this morning, that I am not coming back. Do you understand? Go and repeat it to all the servants. Be off, quick. Having uttered these words, he hurriedly slipped on his dressing gown and ran off to shut himself up in the coach house, which he thought the safest hiding place but he fancied that he might be noticed in the corner in which he had taken refuge. This will be better, he said to himself, letting down the steps of the nearest vehicle, which happened to be the calash. He jumped inside, closed the door, and as a further precaution, covered himself with the leather apron. There he remained, wrapped in his dressing gown, in a doubled-up position. During this time, the equipages had drawn up before the porch. The general got out of his carriage and shook himself, followed by the colonel, arranging the feathers in his hat. After him came the stout major, his sabre under his arm, and the slim lieutenants, whilst the mounted officers also alighted. The master is not at home, said a servant, appearing at the top of a flight of steps. What? Not at home? But he is coming home for dinner, is he not? No, he is not. He has gone out for the day, and will not be back till this time tomorrow. Bless me, said the general, but what the juice? What a joke, said the colonel, laughing. No, no, such things are inconceivable, said the general angrily. If he could not receive us, why did he invite us? I cannot understand, your excellency, how it is possible to act in such a manner, observed a young officer. What, said the general, who always made an officer under the rank of captain, repeat his remarks twice over. I wondered, Your Excellency, how anyone could do such a thing. Quite so. If anything has happened, he ought to have let us know. There is nothing to be done, Your Excellency. We had better go back home, said the Colonel. Certainly, there is nothing to be done. However, we can see the Kalash without him. Probably, he has not taken it with him. Come here, my man. What does Your Excellency want? Show us your master's Kalash. Have the kindness to step this way to the coach house. The general entered the coach house, followed by his officers. Let me pull it a little forward, your excellency, said the servant. It is rather dark here. That will do. The general and his officers walked around the calash, carefully inspecting the wheels and springs. There is nothing remarkable about it, said the general. It is a very ordinary calash. Nothing to look at, added the colonel. There is absolutely nothing good about it. It seems to me, Your Excellency, that it is not worth 4,000 rubles, remarked a young officer, 
What? I said, Your Excellency, that I did not think that it is worth 4,000 rubles. 4,000? It is not worth two. Perhaps, however, the inside is well fitted. Unbutton the apron. And Chertokutsky appeared before the officer's eyes, clad in his dressing gown, and doubled up in a singular fashion. Hello, there you are, said the astonished general. Then he covered Chertokutsky up again, and went off with his officers. End of the Kalash Recording by Hatton 43 End of Taras Bulba and Other Tales by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Act 4 of The Inspector General by Nikolai Gogol Translated by Thomas Seltzer Act 4 Scene Same as in Act 3 Scene 1 Enter cautiously, almost on tiptoe, Amos Fyodorovich, Artimi Filipovich, the postmaster, Luka Lukic, Dobchinsky, and Bobchinsky in full dress uniform. For God's sake, gentlemen, quick, form your line and, and let's have more order. Why, man alive, he goes to court and raves at the Imperial Council. Drop in a military line, a strictly in military line. You, Pyotr Ivanovich, take your place there. At- uh, and you, uh, Pyotr Ivanovich, stand here. Both the Pyotr Ivanoviches run on tiptoe to the places indicated. Do as you please, Amos Fyodorovich. I think we ought to try. Uh, try what? It's clear what. Greece? Exactly. Greece. It's risky, the deuce take it. He'll fly into a rage at us. He's a government official, you know. Perhaps it should be given to him in the form of a gift from the nobility, for some sort of memorial? Or perhaps tell him some money has been sent here by post, and we don't know for whom. You had better look out that he doesn't send you by post good long ways off. Look here, things of such a nature are not done this way in a well-ordered state. What's the use of a whole regiment here? We must present ourselves to him one at a time and do what ought to be done, you know? So that eyes do not see and ears do not hear. That's the way things are done in a well-ordered society. You begin it, Amos Fedorovich. You be the first. You had better go first. The distinguished guest has eaten in your institution. Then Luka Lukic, as the enlightener of youth, should go first. I can't. I can't, gentlemen. I confess, I am so educated that the moment an official a single degree higher than myself speaks to me, my heart stands still and I get as tongue-tied as though my tongue were caught in the mud. No, gentlemen, excuse me, please, let me off. It's you who have got to do it, Amos Fedorovich. There's no one else. Why, every word you utter seems to be issuing from Cicero's mouth. What are you talking about? Cicero, the idea. Just because a man sometimes waxes enthusiastic over house dogs or hunting hounds. All pressing him. No, not over dogs, but the Tower of Babel. Don't forsake us, Amos Fyodorovich. Help us, be our savior. Let go of me, gentlemen. Footsteps and coughing are heard in Hlestakov's room. All hurry to the door, crowding and jostling in their struggle to get out. Some are uncomfortably squeezed and half-suppressed cries are heard. Oh, Piotr Ivanovich, you stepped on my foot! Look out, gentlemen, look out! 
Give me a chance to atone for my sins. You are squeezing me to death. Exclamations of, Oh, oh. Finally, they all push through the door and the stage is left empty. Scene two. Enter Hlestikov, looking sleepy. Hlestikov, alone. I seem to have had a fine snooze. Where do they get those mattresses and feather beds from? I even perspired. After the meal yesterday, they must have slipped something into me that knocked me out. I still feel a pounding in my head. I see I can have a good time here. I like hospitality, and I must say I like it all the more if people entertain me out of a pure heart, and not from interested motives. The governor's daughter is not a bad one at all. And the mother is also a woman you can still... I don't know, but I do like this sort of life. Scene 3. Hlistakov and the judge. Judge comes in and stops, talking to himself. Oh God, bring me safely out in this. How my knees are knocking together. Drawing himself up and holding the sword in his hand. Aloud. <clears throat> I have the honor to present myself, judge of the district court here, college assessor Lepkin Tepkin. Please be seated. So you were the judge here. I was elected by the nobility in 1816, and I have served ever since. Does it pay to be a judge? After serving three terms, I was decorated with the Vladimir of the third class with the approval of the government. Aside. I have the money in my hand, and my hand is on fire. I like the Vladimir. Anna of the third class is not so nice. Judge. Slightly extending his bald fist. Aside. Good God, I don't know where I'm sitting. I feel as though I were on burning coals. What have you got in your hand there? Amos, getting all mixed up and dropping the bills on the floor. Nothing. How so, nothing? I see money has dropped out of it. Amos, shaking all over. Uh, oh, no, not at all. Aside. Oh, Lord, now I'm under arrest and they've brought a wagon to take me. Yes, it is money. Picking it up. Amos, aside. It's all over with me. I'm lost, I'm lost. I tell you what, lend it to me. Amos, eagerly. Why, of course, of course. With the greatest pleasure. Aside. Boulder, Boulder, Holy Virgin, stand by me. I've run out of cash on the road, what with one thing and another, you know. I'll let you have it back as soon as I get to the village. Please don't mention it. It is a great honor to have you take it. I'll try to deserve it by putting forth the best of my feeble powers, by my zeal and ardor for the government. Rises from the chair and draws himself up straight with his hands hanging at his sides. I will not venture to disturb you longer with my presence. You don't care to give any orders? What orders? I mean, would you like to give orders for the district court here? What for? I have nothing to do with the court now. Uh, no, nothing. Thank you very much. Amos, bowing and leaving, aside. Now the town is ours. The judge is a fine fellow. Scene 4. Lestikov and the Postmaster. Postmaster, in uniform, sword in hand. Drawing himself up. <clears throat> I have the honor to present myself. 
postmaster, court counselor Specken. Ah, I'm glad to meet you. I like pleasant company very much. Uh, take a seat. Do you live here all the time? Yes, sir. Quite so. I like this little town. Of course, there aren't many people. It's not very lively. Uh, but what of it? It isn't the capital. Uh, isn't that so... It isn't the capital. Quite so. Quite so. It's only in the capital that you find Vonton and not a lot of provincial lovers. What is your opinion? Isn't that so? Quite so. Aside. He isn't a bit proud. He inquires about everything. And yet, you'll admit that one can live happily in a little town. Quite so. In my opinion, what you want is this. You want people to respect you and to love you sincerely, isn't that so? Exactly. I'm glad you agree with me. Of course, they call me queer, but that's the kind of character I am. Looking him in the face and talking to himself. I think I'll ask this postmaster for a loan. Aloud. A strange accident happened to me and I ran out of cash on the road. Uh, can you lend me 300 rubles? Of course, I shall esteem it a piece of great good fortune. I am ready to serve you with all my heart. Thank you very much. I must say I hate like the devil to deny myself on the road. And why should I? Isn't that so? Quite so. Rises, draws himself up, with his sword in his hand. Oh, I'll not venture to disturb you any more. Would you care to make any remarks about the post office administration? No, nothing. The postmaster bows and goes out. Klistakov, lighting a cigar. It seems to me the postmaster is a fine fellow, too. He's certainly obliging. I like people like that. Scene 5. Klistakov and Luka Lukic, who is practically pushed in on the stage. A voice behind him is heard saying nearly aloud, Don't be chicken-hearted. Luca, drawing himself up, trembling, with his hand on his sword. I have the honor to present myself. School inspector, titular counselor, Klopov. I'm glad to see you. Take a seat, take a seat. Will you have a cigar? Offers him a cigar. Luca, to himself, hesitating. There now. That's something I hadn't anticipated. To take or not to take? Take it, take it. It's a pretty good cigar. Of course, not what you get in St. Petersburg. There I used to smoke 25 cent cigars. You feel like kissing yourself after having smoked one of them. Here, light it. Hands him a candle. Luka Lukic tries to light the cigar, shaking all over. Not that and the other. Luca. Drops the cigar from fright, spits, and shakes his hands. Aside. Pooey! Confounded! My damn timidity has ruined me. I see you are not a lover of cigars. I confess, smoking is my weakness. Smoking and the fair sex. Not for the life of me can I remain indifferent to the fair sex. How about you? Uh, which do you like more, brunettes or blondes? Luka Lukic remains silent at a complete loss what to say. Tell me frankly, brunettes or blondes? I don't dare to know. No, no, don't evade. I'm bound to know your taste. I venture to report to you... Aside. I don't know what I'm saying. 
Ah, you don't want to say. I suppose some little brunette or other has cast a spell over you? Confess, she has, hasn't she? Luka Lukic remained silent. Ah, you're blushing, you see. Why don't you speak? I'm scared, your aunt. Hi, ex- Aside. Done for. My confounded tongue has undone me. You're scared? There is something awe-inspiring in my eyes, isn't there? <laughs> At least I know not a single woman can resist them. Isn't that so? Exactly. A strange thing happened to me on the road. I ran entirely out of cash. Can you lend me 300 rubles? Luca, clutching his pockets, aside. A fine business if I haven't got the money. I have, I have. Takes out the bills and gives them to him, trembling. Thank you very much. Luca, drawing himself up with his hand on his sword. I will not venture to disturb you with my presence any longer. Goodbye. Luca dashes out almost to run, saying, aside, Well, thank the Lord. Maybe he won't inspect the schools. Scene 6. Lestikov and Artemy Filipovich. Artemy enters and draws himself up, his hand on his sword. I have the honor to present myself. Superintendent of Charities, Court Counselor, Zemlyanika. How do you do? Please sit down. I had the honor of receiving you and personally conducting you through the philanthropic institutions committed to my care. Oh, yes, I remember. You treated me to a dandy lunch. I am glad to do all I can in behalf of my country. I admit, my weakness is a good cuisine. Tell me, please, won't you? It seems to me you were a little shorter yesterday, weren't you? Quite possible. After a pause. I may say I spare myself no pains and perform the duties of my office with the utmost zeal. Draws his chair closer and speaks in a lowered tone. There is the postmaster, for example. He does absolutely nothing. Everything is in a fearful state of neglect. The mail is held up. Investigate for yourself, if you please, and you will see. The judge, too, the man who was here just now, does nothing but hunt hares. And he keeps his dogs in the courtrooms, and his conduct, if I must confess, and for the benefit of the fatherland, I must confess, though he is my relative and friend, his conduct is in the highest degree reprehensible. There is a squire here by the name of Dobchinsky, whom you were pleased to see. Well, the moment Dobchinsky leaves the house, the judge is there with Dobchinsky's wife. I can swear to it. You just take a look at the children. Not one of them resembles Dobchinsky. All of them, even the little girl, are the very image of the judge. You don't say so. I never imagined it. Then take the school inspector here. I don't know how the government could have entrusted him with such an office. He's worse than a Jacobin freethinker and he instills such pernicious ideas into the minds of the young that I can hardly describe it. Hadn't I better put it all down on paper if you so order? Very well, why not? I should like it very much. I like to kill the weary hours reading something amusing, you know. What is your name? I keep forgetting. Zemlyanika. Oh, yes, Zemlyanika. <laughs> Tell me, Mr. Zemlyanika, have you any children? Of course, five. Two are already grown up. You don't say. Grown up. And how are they... Uh, how are they... Uh, uh... 
You mean that you deign to ask what their names are? Yes, yes. What are their names? Nicole, Ivan, Elisaveta, Maria, and Peripetuya. Good. I don't venture to disturb you any longer with my presence and rob you of your time dedicated to the performance of your sacred duties. Bows and makes to go. Hlestikov, escorting him. Not at all. What you told me is all very funny. Call again, please. I like that sort of thing very much. Turns back and reopens the door, calling. I say there, what is your... I keep forgetting. Uh, what is your first name and your patronymic? Artemy Filipovich. Do me a favor, Artemy Filipovich. A curious accident happened to me on the road. I've run entirely out of cash. Have you 400 rubles to lend me? I have. That comes in pat. Thank you very much. Scene 7. Plestikov, Bobchinsky, and Dobchinsky. I have the honor to present myself. A resident of this town, Pyotr, son of Ivan Bobchinsky. I am Pyotr, son of Ivan Dobchinsky, a squire. Oh, yes, I've met you before. I believe you fell. How's your nose? It's all right. Please don't trouble. It's dried up, dried up completely. That's nice. I'm glad it's dried up. Suddenly and abruptly. Have you any money? Money? How's that? Uh, money? A thousand rubles to lend me. Not so much as that. Honest to God, I haven't. Have you, Pyotr Ivanovich? I haven't got it with me. Because my money, I, I beg to inform you, is deposited in the state savings bank. Well, if you haven't a thousand, then a hundred. Bobchinsky, fumbling in his pockets. Uh, have you a hundred rubles, Pyotr Ivanovich? All I have is forty. Dobchinsky, examining his pocketbook. I, I have only twenty-five. Look harder, Pyotr Ivanovich. I know you have a hole in your pocket, and the money must have dropped down into it somehow. No, honestly, there isn't any in the hole either. Well, never mind. I merely mentioned the matter. Sixty-five will do. Takes the money. May I venture you to ask a favor of you concerning a very delicate matter? What is it? It's a matter of an extremely delicate nature. My oldest son, I beg to inform you, was born before I was married. Indeed. That is, um, only in a sort of way. He is really my son, just as if he had been born in a wedlock. I made up everything afterwards, set everything right, as it should be, with the bonds of matrimony, you, you know. Now, I venture to inform you, I should like to have him altogether. That is, I should like him to be altogether my legitimate son and be called Dobchinsky, the same as I. Oh, that's all right. Let him be called Dobchinsky. That's possible. I shouldn't have troubled you, but it's a pity. He's such a talented youngster. He gives the greatest promise. He can recite different poems by heart. And whenever he gets hold of a penknife, he makes little carriages as skillfully as a conjurer. 
He is Piotr Ivanovich. He knows. Am I not right? Yes, the lad is very talented. All right, all right. I'll try to do it for you. I'll speak to... I hope... It'll be done. It'll all be done. Yes, yes. Turning to Bobchinsky. Have you anything you'd like to say to me? Why, of course. I have a most humble request to make. What is it? I beg your highness, or your excellency, most worshipfully. When you get back to St. Petersburg, please tell all the high personages there, the senators and the admirals, that Pyotr Ivanovich Bobchinsky lives in this town. Say this. Pyotr Ivanovich lives there. Very well. And if you should happen to speak to the Tsar, then tell him too. Your Majesty, tell him. Your Majesty, Pyotr Ivanovich Bobchinsky lives in this town. Very well. Pardon me for having troubled you with my presence. Not at all, not at all. It was my pleasure. Seize them to the door. Senate. Lestikov, alone. My, there are a lot of officials here. They seem to be taking me for a government functionary. To be sure, I threw dust in their eyes yesterday. What a bunch of fools. I'll write all about it to Triapishkin in St. Petersburg. He'll write them up in the papers. Let him give them a nice walloping. Oh, Osip, give me paper and ink. Osip, looking in at the door. Directly. Anybody gets caught in Triapishkin's tongue had better look out. For the sake of a witticism, he wouldn't spare his own father. They are good people, though, these officials. It's a nice trait of theirs to lend me money. I'll just see how much it all mounts up to. Here's 300 from the judge, and 300 from the postmaster, 600, uh, 700, 800. What a greasy bill. 800, 900. <laughs> Rolls up to more than a thousand. Now if I get you, Captain, now we'll see who'll do whom. Scene 9. Lestikov and Osip, entering with paper and ink. Now, you simpleton, you see how they receive and treat me? Begins to write. Yes, thank God. But do you know what, Ivan Alexandrovich? What? Leave this place. Upon my word, it's time. Klestikov, writing. What nonsense. Why? Just so. God be with them. You've had a good time here for two days. It's enough. What's the use of having anything more to do with them? Spit on them. You don't know what may happen. Somebody else may turn up. Upon my word, Ivan Alexandrovich. And the horses here are fine. We'll gallop away like a breeze. Klestikov, writing. No, I'd like to stay a little longer. Let's go tomorrow. Why tomorrow? Let's go now, Ivan Alexandrovich. Now, upon my word, to be sure, it's a great honour and all that. But really, we'd better go as quick as we can. You see, they've taken you for somebody else. Honest. And your dad will be angry because you dilly-dallied so long. We'd gallop off so smartly. They give us first-class horses here. Klestikov, writing. All right. But first, take this letter to the post office, and, if you like, order post horses at the same time. 
Tell the postilions that they should drive like couriers and sing songs, and I'll give them a ruble each. Continues to write. I wager Triapishkin will die laughing. I'll send the letter off by the man here. I'd rather be packing in the meanwhile so as to lose no time. All right. Bring me a candle. Osip, outside the door where he's heard speaking. Say, partner, go to the post office and mail a letter and tell the postmaster to frank it. And have a coach sent round at once, the very best courier coach. And tell them the master doesn't pay fare. He travels at the expense of the government. And make them hurry, or else the master will be angry. Wait, the letter isn't ready yet. I wonder where he lives now, on Poshtamskia or Krokovaya Street. He likes to move often, too, to get out of paying rent. I'll make a guess and send it to Poshtamskia Street. Folds the letter and addresses it. Osip brings the candle. Khlestikov seals the letter with sealing wax. At that moment, Dejimorda's voice is heard saying, Where are you going, Whiskers? You've been told that nobody is allowed to come in. Khlestikov, giving the letter to Osip. There, have it mailed. Let us in, brother. You have no right to keep us out. We have come on business. Get out of here, get out of here. He doesn't receive anybody. He's asleep. The disturbance outside grows louder. What's the matter there, Osip? See what the noise is about. Osip, looking through the window. There are some merchants there who want to come in, and the sergeant won't let them. They are waving papers. I suppose they want to see you. Hlestikov, going to the window. What is it, friends? We appeal for your protection. Give orders, your lordship, that our petitions be received. Let them in, let them in. Osip, tell them to come in. Osip goes out. Hlestikov takes the petitions through the window, unfolds one of them, and reads... To his most honourable, illustrious, financial excellency from the merchant Abdulin. The devil knows what this is. There's no such title. Scene 10. Hlestikov and merchants, with a basket of wine and sugar loaves. What is it, friends? We, we beseech, beseech your favour. What do you want? Don't ruin us, your worship. We, we suffer insult and wrong wholly without cause. From whom? Why? From our governor here. Such a governor there never was yet in the world, your worship. No words can describe the injuries he inflicts upon us. He has taken the bread out of our mouths by quartering soldiers on us, so that you might as well put your neck in a noose. He doesn't treat you as you deserve. He catches hold of your beard and says, Oh, you tatter! Upon my word, if we had shown him any disrespect, but we obey all the laws and regulations. We don't mind giving him what his wife and daughter need for their clothes. But no, that's not enough. So help me God. He comes to our shop and takes whatever his eyes falls on. He sees a piece of cloth and says, Oh my friends, that's a fine piece of goods. Take it to my house. So we take it to his house. It will be almost 40 yards. Is it possible? My, what a swindler! So, so help, help us God. God! No one remembers a governor like him. When you see him coming, you hide everything in the shop. 
It's not only that he wants a few delicacies and fineries. He takes every bit of trash too. Prunes that have been in the barrel seven years and even the boy in my shop would not eat. And he grabs a fistful. His name day is St. Anthony's and you'd think that there's nothing left in the world to bring him and that he doesn't want any more. But, but no, you, you must, must give, give him, him more. more. He says St. Onfrey is also his name day. What What's is to, to be, be done? done? You have to take things to him on St. Onfrey's day too. Why, he's a plain robber. Yes, yes indeed. indeed. And try to contradict him and you will fill your house with a whole regiment of soldiers. And if you say anything, he orders the doors to be closed. I won't inflict corporal punishment on you, he says. Or put you in the rack. That's forbidden by law, he says. But I will make you swallow salt herring, my good man. What a swindler! For such things a man can be sent to Siberia. It doesn't matter where you're pleased to send him. Only the farthest away from here the better. Father, don't scorn to accept our bread and salt. We pay respects to you with sugar and a basket of wine. No, no, don't think of it. I don't take bribes. Uh, oh, if, for example, you would offer me a loan of 300 rubles, that's quite different. I'm willing to take a loan. If, if you, you please, please father, father. They take out money. But what is 300? Better take 500. Only help us. Very well. About a loan, I won't say a word. I'll take it. Merchants, proffering him the money on a silver tray. Do please, please take, take the, the tray, tray too. too. Very well, I can take the tray too. Merchants, bowing. Then, then take, take the, the sugar, sugar at, at the, the same, same time. time. Oh no, I take no bribes. Why won't you take the sugar, your highness? Take it. Everything will come in handy on the road. Give here the sugar, in that case. Give them here. It'll all be of use. What have you got there? A string? Give it here. A string will be handy on the road, too, if the coach or something else should break, for tying it up. Do us this great favour, your illustrious highness. Why, if you don't help us in our appeal to you, then we simply don't know how we are to exist. We, we might as, as well put, put our, our necks in a noose. noose. Positively, positively. I shall exert my efforts in your behalf. The merchants leave. A woman's voice is heard saying, Don't you dare not to let me in. I'll make a complaint against you to him himself. Don't push me that way, it hurts. Who is there? Goes to the window. What is it, mother? Two women's voices are heard. We, we beseech, beseech your, your grace, grace father. father. Give orders, your lordship, for us to be heard. Let her in. Scene 11. Plestikov, the locksmith's wife, and the non-commissioned officer's widow. Locksmith's wife, kneeling. I beseech your grace. I beseech your grace. Who are you? Ivanova, widow of a non-commissioned officer. Vivronia Petrova Poshliopkina. The wife of a locksmith, a burgess of this town, my father. Stop. One at a time. What do you want? I beg for your grace. I beseech your aid against the governor. May God send all evil upon him. May neither he nor his children nor his uncles 
nor his aunts ever prosper in any of their undertakings. What's the matter? He ordered my husband to shave his forehead as a soldier, and our turn hadn't come. And it is against the law, my husband being a married man. How could he do it then? He did it. He did it, the black guard. May God smite him, both in this world and the next. If he has an aunt, may all harm descend upon her. And if his father is living, may the rascal perish. May he choke to death. Such a cheat. The son of the tailor should have been levied. And he is a drunkard, too. But his parents gave the governor a rich present. So he fastened on the son of the tradeswoman, Pantelieva. And Pantelieva also sent his wife three pieces of linen. So then he comes to me. What do you want your husband for, he says. He isn't any good to you anymore. It's for me to know whether he is any good or not. That's my business. The old cheat. He's a thief, he says. Although he hasn't stolen anything. That doesn't matter. He is going to steal. And he'll be recruited next year anyway. How can I do without a husband? I am not a strong woman. The skunk. May none of his kith and kin ever see the light of God. And if he has a mother-in-law, may she too... All right, all right. Well, and you? Addressing the widow and leading the locksmith's wife to the door. Locksmith's wife, leaving. Don't forget, father. Be kind and gracious to me. I have come to complain against the governor, father. What is it? What for? Be brief. He flogged me, father. How so? By mistake, my father. Our women got into a squabble in the market, and when the police came, it was all over, and they took me and reported me. I couldn't sit down for two days. But what's to be done now? There's nothing to be done, of course. But if you please, order him to pay a fine for the mistake. I can't undo my luck, but the money would be very useful to me now. All right, all right. Uh, go now, go. I'll see to it. Hands with petitions are thrust through the window. Who else is out there? Goes to the window. No, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. Leaves the window. I'm sick of it, the devil take it. Don't let them in, Osip. Osip, calling through the window. Go away. Go away. He has no time. Come tomorrow. The door opens and a figure appears in a shag cloak, with unshaven beard, swollen lip and a bandage over his cheek. Behind him appear a whole line of others. Go away. Go away. What are you crowding in here for? He puts his hands against the stomach of the first one and goes out through the door, pushing him and banging the door behind. Scene 12. Hlestikov and Maria Antonovna. Oh! What frightened you so, mademoiselle? I wasn't frightened. Hlestikov, showing off. Please, miss, it's a great pleasure to me that you took me for a man who... May I venture to ask you where you were going? I really wasn't going anywhere. But why weren't you going anywhere? I was wondering whether Mama was here. No. I'd like to know why you weren't going anywhere. I should have been in your way. 
You are occupied with important matters. Klestikov, showing off. Your eyes are better than important matters. You cannot possibly disturb me. No, indeed, by no means. On the contrary, you afford me great pleasure. You speak like a man from the capital. For such a beautiful lady as you. May I give myself the pleasure of offering you a chair? Oh, but no, you should have not a chair, but a throne. I really don't know. I really must go. She sits down. What a beautiful scarf that is. You are making fun of me. You're only ridiculing the provincials. Oh, mademoiselle, how I long to be your scarf, so that I might embrace your lily neck. I haven't the least idea of what you were talking about. Scarf! Peculiar weather, isn't it? Your lips, mademoiselle, are better than any weather. You were just saying that. I should like to ask you. I'd, I'd rather you'd write some verses in my album for a souvenir. You must know very many. Anything you desire, mademoiselle. Ask. What verses will you have? Any at all. Pretty new verses. Oh, what are verses? I know a lot of them. Well, tell me. What verses will you write for me? What's the use? I know them anyway. I love them so. I have lots of them, of every sort. If you like, for example, I'll give you this. O oh, thou mortal man, who in thy anguish murmurest against God... And others. I can't remember them now. Besides, it's all bosh. I'd rather offer you my love instead, whichever since your first glance. Moves his chair nearer. Love? I don't understand love. I never knew what love is. Moves her chair away. Why do you move your chair away? It is better for us to sit near each other. Maria, moving away. Why near? It's all the same if it's far away. Hlestikov, moving nearer. Why far? It's all the same if it's near. Maria, moving away. But what for? Hlestikov, moving nearer. It only seems near to you. Imagine it's far. How happy I would be, mademoiselle, if I could clasp you in my embrace. Maria, looking through the window. What is that? It looked as if something had flown by. Was it a magpie or some other bird? Hlestikov kisses her shoulder and looks through the window. It's a magpie. Maria rises indignantly. No, that's too much. Such rudeness. Such impertinence. Hlestikov, holding her back. Forgive me, mademoiselle. I did it only out of love. Only out of love, nothing else. You take me for a silly provincial wench. Struggles to go away. Hlestikov, still holding her back. It's out of love, really, out of love. It was just a little fun. Maria Antonova, don't be angry. I'm ready to beg your forgiveness on my knees. Falls on his knees. Forgive me. Do forgive me. You see, I'm on my knees. Scene 13. The same and Anna Andreevna. Anna, seeing Klestikov on his knees. Oh, what a situation. Klestikov, rising. Oh, the devil. Anna, to Maria. What does this mean? What does this behavior mean? I... Mother! Go away from here, do you hear? And don't you dare show your face to me. Maria goes out in tears. 
Excuse me, I must say I am greatly astonished. Lestikov, aside. She's very appetizing, too. She's not bad-looking, either. Flings himself on his knees. Madam, you see, I am burning with love. What? You on your knees? Please get up. Please get up. This floor isn't very clean. No, I must be on my knees before you. I must pronounce the verdict. Is it life or death? But please, I don't quite understand the significance of your words. If I am not mistaken, you are making a proposal for my daughter? No, I am in love with you. My life hangs by a thread. If you don't crown my steadfast love, then I am not fit to exist in this world. With a burning fire in my bosom, I pray for your hand. But please remember, I am, in a certain way, married. That's nothing. Love knows no distinction. It was Karamzin who said, The laws condemn. We will fly in the shadow of a brook. Your hand, I pray for your hand. Scene 14. The same, and Maria Antonovna. Maria, running in suddenly. Mama, Papa says you should... Seeing Lestikov on his knees, exclaims. Oh, what a situation. Well, what do you want? Why did you come in here? What for? What sort of flightiness is this? Breaks in like a cat leaping out of smoke. Well, what have you found so wonderful? What's gotten into your head again? Really, she behaves like a child of three. She doesn't act a bit like a girl of eighteen. Not a bit. I don't know when you'll get more sense into your head. When you'll behave like a decent, well-bred girl. When you'll know what good manners are and a proper demeanor. Maria, through her tears. Mommy, I really don't There's know. There's always a breeze blowing through your head. You act like Lyapkin Tyapkin's daughter. Why should you imitate them? You shouldn't imitate them. You have other examples to follow. You have your mother before you. She's the example to follow. Lestikov, seizing Maria's hand. Anna Andreevna, don't oppose our happiness. Give your blessing to our constant love. Anna, in surprise. So it's in her you Decide. Are... Life or death. Well, there. You fool, you see. Our guest is pleased to go down on his knees for such trash as you. You running in suddenly, as if you were out of your mind. Really, it would be just what you deserve if I refused. You're not worthy of such happiness. I won't do it again. Really, I won't. Scene 15. The same, and the governor, in precipitate haste. Your Excellency, don't ruin me! Don't ruin me! What's the matter? The merchants have complained to Your Excellency. I assure you, on my honor, that not one half of what they say is so. They themselves are cheats. They give short measure and short weight. The officer's widow lied to you when she said I flogged her. She lied, upon my word, she lied! She flogged herself! The devil take the officer's widow. What do I care about the officer's widow? Don't believe them. Don't believe them. They are rank liars. A mere child wouldn't believe them. They are known all over town as liars. And as for cheating, I venture to inform you that there are no swindlers like them in the whole of creation. 
Do you know what honor Ivan Alexandrovich is bestowing upon us? He is asking for our daughter's hand. What are you talking about? Mother has lost her wits. Please do not be angry, Your Excellency. She has a touch of insanity. Her mother was like that, too. Yes, I am really asking for your daughter's hand. I am in love with her. I cannot believe it, Your Excellency. But when you are told... I am not joking. I could go crazy. I am so in love. I daren't believe it. I am unworthy of such an honor. If you don't consent to give me your daughter Maria Antonova's hand, then I am ready to do the devil knows what. I cannot believe it. You deign to joke, Your Excellency. My, what a blockhead, really, when you are told over and over again. I can't believe it. Give her to me, give her to me. I am a desperate man and I may do anything. If I shoot myself, you will have a lawsuit on your hands. Oh, my God, I am not guilty either in thought or in action. Please do not be angry. Be pleased to act as your mercy wills. Really, my head is in such a state I don't know what is happening. I have turned into a worse fool than I've ever been in my life. Well, give your blessing. Lestikov goes up to Maria Antonovna. May God bless you, but I am not guilty. Lestikov kisses Maria. The governor looks at them. What the devil? It's really so. Rubs his eyes. They are kissing. Oh, heavens! They are kissing! Actually to be our son-in-law? Cries out, jumping with glee. Oh, Anton! Oh, Anton! Oh, governor! So that's the turn events have taken! Scene 16. The same and Osip. The horses are ready. Oh, all right. I'll come presently. What's that? Are you leaving? Yes, I'm going. Then when? That is, I thought you were pleased to hint at a wedding. Oh, for one minute only, for one day, to my uncle, a rich old man. I'll be back tomorrow. We would not venture, of course, to hold you back. And we hope for your safe return. Of course, of course, I'll come back at once. Goodbye, my dear. No, I simply can't express my feelings. Goodbye, my heart. Kisses Maria's hand. Don't you need something for the road? It seems to me you are pleased to be short of cash. Oh, no, what for? After a little thought. However, if you like. How much will you have? You gave me two hundred then. Uh, that is, not two hundred, but four hundred. I don't want to take advantage of your mistake. You might let me have the same now that it should be an even eight hundred. Very well. Takes the money out of his pocketbook. The notes happen to be brand new, too, as though on purpose. Oh, yes. Takes the bills and looks at them. That's good. They say new money means good luck. Quite right. Goodbye, Anton Antonovich. I am much obliged to you for your hospitality. I admit with all my heart I have never got such a good reception anywhere. Goodbye, Anna Andreyevna. Goodbye, my sweetheart, Maria Antonova. All go out. 
Behind the scenes. Goodbye, angel of my soul, Maria Antonova. What's that? You are going in a plain mail coach? Yes, I'm used to it. I get a headache from a carriage with springs. Oh. Take a rug for the seat at least. If you say so, I'll tell them to bring a rug. No, what for? It's not necessary. However, let them bring a rug, if you please. Oh, Avdotya, go to the storeroom and bring the very best rug from there. The Persian rug with the blue ground. Quick! Oh! When do you say we are to expect you back? Tomorrow, or the day after. Is this the rug? Give it here. Put it there. Now, put some hay on this side. Ho! Here, on this side. More. All right, that will be fine. Beats the rug down with his hand. Now, take the seat, Your Excellency. Goodbye, Anton Antonovich. Goodbye, Your Excellency. Goodbye, Goodbye, Ivan Alexandrovich. Goodbye, Mother. Get up, my boys! The bell rings and the curtain drops. End of Act 4